VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Did you know that relaxation is all in your mind? That's right. By applying various techniques of mindfulness, you can practice relaxation anywhere and anytime, whether it's at home, work, or at play. Welcome to Come Back to Your Senses Radio with host Leah Brenda Smith. Our program is all about recovering your common sense. Now, here's health and wellness specialist Leah Brenda Smith. Hello, I am your host, Leah Brenda Smith, and welcome to Come Back to Your Senses Radio on Voice America Variety and Project Freedom Radio Network. The podcasts of the show are available 24-7 on my host page or at leahbrendasmith.com. And if you're looking for me on Facebook, you can find me at Come Back to Your Senses Radio. And today we're talking about the seven levels of intimacy. It's really based on a book that I had uh, read uh, by Matthew Kelly. And there was just such great things in it that I had um, read and learned. And um, some of the things I'd been applying already in my life and others were a little bit of a different take on some ways that we can have stronger bonds and be closer in our relationships. So I thought it'd be a great thing to share with you as all of us are in relationship all the time, every day, sharing with each other. And just generally speaking, you know, intimacy refers to the feeling of being in a close personal association and a sense of belonging together. It's, a f- it's about being familiar and having close emotional connections with another as a result of a bond that is formed. And this happens through the knowledge and the experience of getting to know the other person. A genuine intimacy in human relationships requires dialogue and transparency, vulnerability, and reciprocity. And the verb, the verb intimate means to state or make known. So in our human relationships, the meaning and the level of intimacy really varies within and between the different relationships that we have. In anthropological research, intimacy is considered the product of a successful seduction, a process of rapport building that enables parties to confidently disclose previously hidden thoughts and feelings. So intimate conversations become the basis for confidences, which, as we all know, is the sharing of our own secret knowledge that really binds people together. And really, to sustain intimacy for any length of time requires that we have really developed emotional, interpersonal awareness. Intimacy requires the ability on the part of both individuals to be both separate and also to be able to participate together in nurturing the intimacy in the relationship. 
that Marie Bowen calls this self-differentiation. And it, it results in a connection in which there's an emotional range involving both intense loyalty and healthy conflict. But lacking the ability to differentiate oneself from the other is a form of symbiosis, which is a state that is different from intimacy, even though the feelings of closeness are often similar. So really that healthy connection really is the ability to be separate and then also to be connected and interdependent. Now, intimacy is one of those things that human beings really can't live happily without. Now, we can live happily without new cars and designer label clothes, and we can live and thrive, you know, without our dream home, being in an immaculate neighborhood, and we can live without vacations each year to all the right places, but we cannot ever live happily without intimacy. Intimacy is one of our legitimate needs. And it really is a prerequisite for happiness. You can survive without it, but you cannot really thrive without it. And the bonds of healthy relationships bring a balance to our lives that flow into every aspect of our lives. We're most joyous and creative, productive, and even enthusiastic about life when we're thriving in our relationships. Now, the seven levels of intimacy outlined by Matthew Kelly in his book, it's really a brilliant, it's a practical guide to creating and sustaining intimacy. So whether you're looking for more fulfillment from your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or looking for a deeper sense of connection with your spouse, or trying to improve your relationships with your children, or even wondering what you should be looking for in a partner, or even if you're struggling with relationships at work, the seven levels of intimacy can get you, can get you on track and really get you asking the right questions. You know, too often our modern culture confuses happiness, happiness with pleasure and with possessions. And we all get caught in this from time to time, but once we've really experienced the pleasure and attained the possessions, hmm, we're still left wanting something. The happiness and the fulfillment that we yearn for really only true, truly comes from sharing. Sharing, sharing the experience of life with other people. Intimacy is really what we yearn for and everything else is just really attempt to fill the void created by a lack of intimacy. Really, you know, without intimacy, all the riches in the world can't satisfy our hungry hearts. I guess that's where that saying comes from. They say money can't buy happiness. But we all yearn for intimacy, and we all avoid intimacy. We want it badly, but we often run from it. And at some deep level, we sense that we have a profound need for intimacy, but sometimes we're just afraid to go there. We avoid intimacy because having intimacy means exposing our secrets. 
Being intimate means sharing the secrets of our hearts and our mind and our soul with another person, with another fragile, vulnerable person. And intimacy really requires that we allow another person to discover what moves us, what really inspires us, what drives us or what eats away at us. What are we running towards or what are we running from? What are the self-destructive things that are inside of us? And what are our wild and wonderful dreams that we hold as precious and dear and deep in our hearts? So through the model of the seven levels of intimacy, Matthew Kelly, he teaches us in a practical way, he teaches us how to know these things about ourselves and how we can share ourselves more deeply with the people that we love. And, you know, this model is a guide, as all models are, but it can change the way that you approach your relationships. Life is self-revelation. Really, it is about revealing yourself, and daily we reveal ourselves to people all around us, all the time. All of our speech and our actions reveal something about us to the world. Even the things that we withhold speak to who we are. But life really is about the way that we share ourselves with others moment by moment. And relationships are a process of self-revelation. Even though we spend time and energy hiding our true self from each other in relationships, that's the true paradox with our struggle for intimacy. Our human experience is a journey towards harmony and balance, out of chaos and extremes. And this is also true in our quest for intimacy. We yearn for it. We long for it. We want that closeness. And yet, sometimes we find ourselves cleverly at times avoiding it. We want it, yet we run from it. And instinctively we know that intimacy is an essential need, yet we're also afraid of it, and so then the paradox just just continues. Generally speaking, we could think that the really think of it that the fear of intimacy seems to be based on the mental assumption that if people really knew us, if they really knew us, would they love us? Consciously and subconsciously, we're always asking ourselves, if they really knew me, would they still love me? Would they still employ me? Would they want to hang out with me? Would they want to be my friend? And although we're afraid to reveal ourselves for that fear of being rejected, it's only in revealing ourselves that we will ever open the possibility of truly being loved. Clearly, we can't be loved for who we are if we don't reveal ourselves. We'll never experience intimacy and always feel alone until we do reveal ourselves. Now, I've spoken with many people and have had the experience myself, you know, people expressing to me that They've been in relationships where they have felt totally alone. 
in these situations, the underlying imbalance was always a lack of true intimacy. The experience of authentic intimacy that comes from open sharing. To be intimate means to reveal yourself. To share yourself. We're all here with our imperfections and our talents, our blemishes and our challenges, our windfalls and our shortcomings. And all of this is really part of that delicious mix of what makes us human beings. So regardless of the nature of a relationship, whether it's a friend or a family member, a significant other, a work associate, or an acquaintance, the threshold of intimacy always involves a mutual willingness to know and to be known by another person. And the deepest levels of intimacy occur when you reveal your true self, you know your authentic self. Well, granted, self-revelation is definitely a part of this experience, as it's through the knowing of your authentic self that you are then able to have your most genuine thoughts, feelings, opinions, and values. Through that openness of your authentic self that you have those things available to yourself and therefore then your authentic self is available in your exchanges with other people. We have to be willing to take off the masks, you know, let down our guard, set aside the pretenses and share what's really moving within us and what is directing our lives. Being vulnerable and opening up is actually the greatest gift that we can give ourselves and the greatest gift that we can give another human being to simply allow another person to see you for who you are with all your talents, abilities, weaknesses, faults, your achievements, and your full potential. This can be one of the most freeing experiences available to us in our relationship with ourselves and than in our exchange with other people. So clearly, we need to be willing to open open our heart and our mind and our body, open ourselves in an unrestricted sharing. A discernment in relationship is always of the utmost importance, as not all relationships are worthy of such complete intimacy. However, if you open honest, unbridled communication, if open and honest and unbridled communication is not the way that you're sharing in your primary relationship, then it may be a good time for some self-reflection on your part to help you determine why are you holding yourself back from your primary relationship? Or maybe asking why might your partner be holding themselves back from you? Intimacy is a two-way street. It's a process of mutual self-revelation. And that inspires us to give completely, to give ourselves completely to another person in order to surrender to that divine mystery of love. 
not everyone is open to sharing deep levels of intimacy. So it's wise to be mindful. Be mindful. Choose someone who is a match in your goals about intimacy when making a commitment in a primary relationship. Because without that, we end up feeling very alone in our relationship, willing and opening and open to offer a deeper level of intimacy than maybe the person we're sharing with is even aware of. So Matthew Kelly, in his book, The Seven Levels of Intimacy, The Art of Loving and the Joy of Being Loved, he suggests that at the highest level of healthy relationships, each person's committed to being the best version of themselves, and that each person in the relationship is committed to helping their partner be the best version of their selves. Okay, so this doesn't mean that we groom our partner into being the person that we think they should be or who we want them to be Uh, at some point. I'm sure we've all tried that. But this really means listening to your partner while they reveal to you who they are and supporting them to be the best version of who they are. So the premise is that all relationships fall into one of the seven levels of intimacy. And intimacy can be thought of as how open you are to reveal yourself in front of someone. So some relationships remain at the lower levels. They're functional relationships, you know, like your hairdresser, your coworker, casual friends. But with our more intimate, more more personal relationships, we should be striving towards greater levels of intimacy. Relationships that grow in intimacy when we share more and more of our authentic self, our facts, opinions, hopes, dreams, feelings, faults, fears, failures, and our legitimate needs. Kelly suggests that our fear of disappointment, rejection, and embarrassment is what keeps us from being our true selves. Well, which in turn keeps us from our really being intimately connected with others. You know, our society promotes images. You know, we're all pushed to hide our raw emotions, cover up our natural beauty, and ignore our dependability. We're afraid to let people know us. We hide our innermost thoughts and fears and dreams, sometimes even from our closest companions. Sometimes we go to great lengths to appear fearless or invulnerable. But Kelly urges us that intimacy is gained when you get to know someone well enough to understand, understand, you know, to like them and, and that they are vulnerable and flawed and that this weakness transforms into common ground, and we have an even playing field, if you like. You know, the desire for happiness is a desire for intimacy. And Kelly really challenges the common belief that sex equates to intimacy. He, he argues that sex is not intimacy, though it can be a part of intimacy that sex isn't a guarantee of intimacy. However, sex is often used as a substitute for intimacy. And when people run from true intimacy, they can find themselves enslaved by addictions. 
which can also become substitutes for intimacy. But intimacy is multidimensional. It combines all the four aspects of our human nature, the physical, the emotional, the intellectual, and the spiritual. And it can be helpful to understanding intimacy if we understand how these different aspects really affect the whole totality of who we are as a human being. Physical intimacy, it's, it's the easiest of the four. You know, it can start with a simple handshake, a smile, a kiss on the cheek. And physical intimacy can also be manipulated because even the slightest form of physical intimacy can create a feeling of closeness and belonging. So there is an opportunity for incredible closeness and sometimes oneness when two people engage in sexual intimacy. And this explains the bond that's created by two people through the act of lovemaking. And it also can account for the pain that people often feel when they are separated from a lover. The two have become one, and then that bond becomes broken. And sometimes people continue to experience that loss, even after years of separation. But all of our relationships have a physical aspect to them. Even relationships that happen just over the phone or the internet, you're still experiencing the other person through your senses, while you are speaking and listening, or sitting and typing and reading their response. Our physical bodies are the vehicle through which we experience everything in life. Emotional intimacy is much harder to achieve than the physical intimacy. It requires humility and vulnerability that many people are simply not comfortable with at first. But even in the best relationships with the most genuine people, it takes time. It takes time for us to be convinced that it's safe to let down our guard. And if we've been hurt or betrayed in the past, which most of us have, it may take even longer. You know, the maze of our opinions and feelings and fears and hopes and dreams, it's something that we guard closely, which is natural. It's natural. It's appropriate that we do that. Yet we shouldn't allow the fear of revealing ourselves to become our natural state. Even in most of our secondary relationships, there's ways that we can reveal ourselves without making the other person feel uncomfortable and without threatening our sense of personal, you know, the personal self. Remember, life is self-revelation. And every time we encounter someone, we're revealing ourselves to that person. Even though people may not know your name, when you smile at them or say good morning, they'll know something about you. By being polite and courteous and friendly, you've revealed something about yourself. So revealing yourself in positive and healthy ways is at the core of intimacy. In the emotional realm, intimacy with self and others is really driven by our observations. Self-observation involves knowing how certain people, situations, 
circumstances, and opportunities make you feel. In observation of others, it involves opening your ears and your eyes and your heart to know how people are responding to you. You know, what is their body language? Are people comfortable around you? If not, what makes them uncomfortable? Is there something you could change about the way that you relate to other people? Self-observation. You know, emotional intimacy cannot be isolated from the other three aspects of intimacy. Because in many ways that we as a species, you know, we haven't yet really begun to understand the physical, mental, intellectual, and spiritual interconnectedness of all the aspects of ourselves. But like emotional intimacy, intellectual intimacy takes longer to establish than physical intimacy. The creation of intellectual intimacy requires a variety of experiences and a number of experiences surrounding different aspects of life. It's established through conversation, by experiencing different cultural or political events, and in any number of other ways that draw out our personal philosophy of life. It's interesting to note that while people who have similar views may establish intellectual intimacy faster at the beginning of a relationship. You needn't have identical points of view on all issues to sustain a vibrant relationship. Similar views on things such as what you believe to be the purpose of a relationship are of obvious importance. And these views can be pivotal, pivotal, in enabling a relationship to grow and thrive. Sometimes, though, holding similar views can also be detrimental in a relationship because you may agree on an issue, but your view may be biased. But because you both hold the same view, your bias goes unchallenged. And the narrow-mindedness that has caused the bias to begin with is only confirmed by your relationship. Intellectual intimacy blossoms in a non-judgmental environment. Different people have different ideas. You know, your ideas are not always right, and their ideas are not always wrong. But keeping an open mind is an important part of intellectual intimacy. If we are to really delve into the beauty and the mystery of the way people think, we must condition ourselves to look beyond the ideas themselves so that we can discover more about the people we love than the ideas will ever tell us. Often we prejudge people because of an idea they express. But the secret really is to look beyond the idea. Discover what has caused a person to believe that such an idea is good, true, or noble, or just, or even beautiful. What's more fascinating is not 
what people think or believe, but why they think and believe what they do. Intellectual intimacy is much more than simply knowing what a person thinks and believes about a variety of issues or topics. It's really about knowing how a person thinks, what drives them or inspires them, what motivates his or her ideas and opinions. That's really getting to the core of intellectual intimacy. And then spiritual intimacy is the rarest and the most elusive form of intimacy. Now, some couples who have spiritual intimacy have virtually identical traditional religious beliefs, but other couples who enjoy this rare intimacy, some of them have tremendously different beliefs or ways of expressing their beliefs. Spiritual intimacy really begins with a respect for each other and blossoms into the idea that the lover will do everything with his his or her power to help the beloved become the best version of himself or herself. It stands to reason, then, that the lover would never do anything to harm the beloved or to cause him or her to become less than who he or she was created to be. Our essential purpose, really, is the foundation on which we build a life filled with passion and purpose. You are here to become the best version of yourself. And this essential purpose also provides the common purpose of every relationship. The first purpose of every relationship is to help each other become the best version of ourselves. It doesn't matter the nature of the relationship. It can be between partners or a parent and a child, friend and a neighbor, or even a business executive and a customer. Now, the first purpose or obligation, the first responsibility of a relationship is to help each other, help each other achieve our essential purpose. But the common purpose is the foundation of spiritual intimacy. You know, we may have investigated the physical aspect of the human person. Maybe we've delved into the emotional and psychological aspect of them. And we may have a reasonably good understanding of the intellectual faculties and capacities of the person. But the makeup and potential of the spiritual aspect of the human person in many ways remains unchartered territory. And the reason is that our spiritual potential is both difficult to explore and easy to neglect. And it's because it's really been an uncharted territory. We've been much more focused on things in the in the outer world than really our, our spiritual selves and intimacy in our own relationship, our own spiritual intimacy. You know, one area of spiritual intimacy, there's a trap that we can easily fall into, and that's really whether or not we consider ourselves to be spiritual people or not. And often you'll hear that someone will say, oh, I'm not a spiritual person. 
But in relationships, especially if we find ourselves in an extraordinary relationship, we can find ourselves exposed to a rare type of idolatry. Now, this occurs when we misplace our priorities. There is a natural order to which most people are oriented, or, you know, the sense of God or creation or whatever the higher power, higher purpose is, then usually family, friends, work, recreation. But if we find ourselves in a relationship with a person who is able to fulfill us in ways that we've not previously known, the danger is that, well, we'll love the gift more than we love the giver of the gift. But spiritual intimacy is best approached as an open-minded adventure in which we seek to discover the truth of every situation and then to apply that truth as we strive to help each other to become the best version of ourselves. So the real work of spirituality is to grow in virtue so as to achieve our essential purpose and reach our fullest potential. The role of spirituality in our relationships is really to provide the tools necessary to help us grow. Virtue makes all respectful relationships possible. Here's some examples. Two patient people will have a better relationship than two impatient people. Two generous people will have a better relationship than two selfish people. And two forgiving people will have a better relationship than two people who choose to hold grudges and refuse to forgive. A considerate couple will have a better relationship than an inconsiderate couple. And two faithful people will always have a better relationship than two unfaithful people. Two disciplined people will always have a better relationship than two undisciplined people. Virtue makes for great relationships. And virtue is the foundation of character. You can build your life on the foundation of virtue, such as patience, kindness, humility, gentleness, forgiveness, and love. Or you can build your life on the foundation of whims and cravings, and fancies and illegitimate wants and selfish desires. But the former will create a life of passion and purpose, while the latter will create an irritable, restless, and disconnected life. So if we have already started to build a relationship on unstable ground of personal pleasure rather than the solid ground of common purpose, it may be necessary to kind of redo certain parts of the relationship in order to build a stronger foundation. Because spiritual intimacy is really the most rewarding form of intimacy. And once you've tasted spiritual intimacy, well, you may discover that physical, emotional, and intellectual spiritually, well, they can be breathtaking in their own right. They don't really belong in the same realm as spiritual intimacy. You'll also discover that as you and your partner grow in spiritual intimacy, your experience of physical, emotional, 
and intellectual intimacy will also be heightened. At the core of the human person is the soul, and it yearns to be fed and to be nurtured. You know, in our quest for intimacy, we must move beyond our preoccupation with the physical to understand what each of these four aspects has to contribute to our relationship. Physical intimacy is limited, but emotional, intellectual, and spiritual intimacies are limitless and relatively unexplored. So if you wish truly to experience the upper reaches of physical intimacy, you must explore and develop the depths of emotional, intellectual, and spiritual intimacy. You know, intimacy is sharing the journey to become the best version of ourselves with another person. It's mutual self-revelation that takes place gradually. It cannot be rushed. And it can only be realized by the commitment of time. Most of all, it's critical that we recognize that intimacy cannot be confined merely to the physical realm or to any other one realm. So as we journey through the levels of intimacy, let's pay attention to the way that each level of intimacy affects the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual aspects of our relationships. You know, there is a myth about relationships that suggests that having common interests is the glue that holds relationships together. But Kelly goes on to really, he demystifies this, and he says that, that this common myth suggests that common interests, he says common interests aren't enough. If common interests are the glue to a relationship, then the relationship gets in danger when one of the partners changes their interests. What he goes on to suggest is that the key to a good relationship isn't whether or not a couple share common interests, but whether the couple share common values. And as long as the couple holds common values, then the relationship isn't in any danger. But if one of them changes their minds about particular interests, then there can be a problem. So once you're clear on your values then Kelly suggests that the common purpose of the relationship is twofold. Each person's committed to being the best version of themselves, and then each person is committed to help their partner be the best version of themselves. You know, when a couple is clear about their values and their common purpose, then the couple has a compass that will guide their decisions and choices, and it'll help them when they feel stuck or when obstacles arise. And this is really the core message to navigating through the layers and levels of intimacy that life has to offer. Now, the journey through Kelly's model of his seven levels go from shallow to deep. Our relationships deepen when we learn how to navigate each level of authentic sharing. But it starts with a mutual willingness to know and to be known by the other person. So Kelly starts with really different types of communication that produce various levels of intimacy. So this is really the forerunner to the deeper levels of intimacy. He speaks about them initially as types of communication. And the first one is cliches. 
You know, those cliches, those simple conversational starters such as, hello, how are you? And when these are handled with ease and grace, then safety is generated and people are willing to go to the next level. But if they are judged or criticized or even ridiculed, then they'll go no further. People start really at the level of cliché to see if it's safe to connect. And then they move on to facts. Well, facts can be personal or non-personal. It can be facts about the weather, sports, current events. Whatever can be really addressed in conversation without too much risk. Except in the case of, you know, the know-it-alls. Now, this is a great level for people to test whether a person is a safe conversationalist. And then we move on to opinions. So the opinion level is the first level of vulnerability. It's marked by a person's willingness to risk revealing something about who they are. This is often the level where conversations break down where disagreements or opinions can reveal inflexibility and intolerance. And conversely, if a person's willing to allow others to disagree without rejecting, ridiculing, or punishing, then the conversation, well, it can continue to the next level. The next level would be hopes and dreams. So if we navigate safely through the level of opinions people will often be willing to reveal what truly inspires them. Sharing hopes and dreams identifies what a person wants to become or how they want to live. Being safe enough to entrust others with your dreams prepares you to connect at an even deeper level. And the next level is the level of feelings. So when the environment is safe enough to be honest with our feelings... Only then are we able to feel truly connected. Inviting someone else into our feelings, however, it makes us feel vulnerable. And for most people, it's a difficult obstacle to overcome, depending on how accepting and validating their past experiences have been while sharing feelings with other people. And the next level is our fears failures, and weakness. This level is uncomfortable for many of us because in our culture, weakness is seen as a fault. And past sharing of one's fears and failures may have been met with ridicule and rejection rather than acceptance and support. So when openness on this level is met with care and nurturing, then real healing and growth can occur. And then the seventh level is the level of needs. So sharing our needs in a way that is vulnerable, not demanding, but vulnerable, is a sign of maturity. And it's the ability to truly listen to another person. Sometimes our conversations lack meaning because we fail to listen or we fail to ask the right questions. We fail to listen because we don't know how to overcome our own needs in order to meet the needs of another person. So this is the seven levels of intimacy in terms of communication and how we start really to develop our layers of intimacy and moving through these levels. And 
Although, the, you know, the model isn't perfect. No model is, but they can be useful. They can be a useful guide. You know, it offers a way where we can check. We can check where you are in terms of your level of intimacy in your relationship. It can help you to check also where your partner is. And you can check whether or not you're similar or on vastly different levels, which is a very common challenge in many relationships. You can go through these, the cliches, facts, opinions, hopes and dreams, feelings, fears, failures and weaknesses, and needs. And if you would look at any of our conversations that we have with anybody, with everybody, they fit into those types of levels. Sometimes you find people are jumping too fast into the feeling level and they don't really get on board with people. They're not going through the stages of creating rapport, which happens as you start with cliches and facts and opinions. It's a really good uh, good model to kind of help us understand sometimes what's going on in our communication with other people. And then Matthew Kelly goes uh, deeper into his investigation of these things and really suggests that, you know, in our intimate relationships, we go into another layer with that and we revisit uh, these steps or these stages or levels of intimacy at a deeper level. So with cliches, which is the first level of intimacy, Really, you're asking yourself, is your relationship a cliché? You know, why do we communicate in clichés? And he suggests that they help us to make initial contact with others. And then other people maybe are incapable of small talk. Some people refuse to engage in small talk. I've certainly learned a lot from reading Matthew Kelly's book around that type of thing and understanding the importance of those foundation uh, pieces of communication. Uh, if you're not willing to engage in small talk, then you're never going to get into those deeper layers of uh, relating and communicating with people. And he also suggests that we uh, have carefree timelessness. And he says that that's really a time that couples set aside some time to be together without an agenda. Then at the second level, the level of facts... He says, who's hiding behind the facts? You know, our natural curiosity and love of learning. So that's the potential to stimulate each other. The power of speech. Letting go of negativity in your speech. Catching someone doing something right. So he's saying that we should speak of the good things that we see and never mind pointing out the other things. Rash judgments. Letting go of judgment. Criticism and correction. Knowing the difference between criticism and correction. And he speaks of the venom of gossip and says that that's one of the most negative manifestations is gossip. Underpaid and underappreciated. Encouraging us to offer words of appreciation. And then using your words powerfully, knowing the power, the power of your speech. Escaping the prison of loneliness starts when we are willing to reveal things about ourselves. Then as we go into the third level of intimacy, 
opinions, he really refers to this as the first major obstacle. He says that's the level where it's important to have the common goal. You know, identifying common goals and common purpose. In that level, we learn how to agree and disagree, and knowing how and when to agree and disagree. Also, the understanding versus acceptance. And he says, in this level, it's impossible to avoid self-revelation. And there's the investigation into what influences and forms our opinions. Because our opinions are a common cause of conflict. And then the first truth. All relationships have problems. Collective ego. He says it's about teamwork, not about getting what you want. Then the fourth level of intimacy is the hopes and dreams and the vision that shapes your life. So the question really of gratification, you know, if you're building hopes, if you're building dreams, you need to know, are you willing to delay gratification to work towards a goal and a purpose? And building a future together. Dreams can really tell you what a person values. And the fifth level of intimacy, are you willing to make yourself vulnerable? He says vulnerable but therapeutic. And that mental health is the greatest reward of being vulnerable. And healthy expression. And he talks about factors that really contribute to healthy expression. And baby steps to our second nature. So as we're sharing at the level of feelings, you know, at first it can be like pulling teeth to get your partner to really share about their feelings, but think of it as baby steps. And then he talks about the dialogues of the deaf. And he says that everyone has something to say, but no one wants to listen. So really encouraging us to listen, listen to your partner. Feelings are reactions getting comfortable with our feelings. Then in the sixth level, which is the faults, fears, and failures, the sixth level of intimacy, it's really about I need help, I'm afraid, I messed up. So really talks about dynamic choice. So rather than being a victim is to take ownership of your faults and your fears. And then the dark side. So striving to let go of the dark side and be the best version of yourself. Then we all have a past. At this level, we're learning about the history of each other. And forgiveness, learning to forgive those who have wronged us. Intimacy and humor. Since the closest distance between two people is humor. And then legitimate needs the seventh level of intimacy, the dynamic collaboration. He says really that the four aspects, the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual needs, to look at those legitimate needs on those levels and look at legitimate needs versus illegitimate needs. So shifting from our illegitimate wants to legitimate needs. And then learning the language of needs. So learning how to speak up about your needs That's another area that can be a great pitfall in relationships, and people are afraid to speak up for their needs. You know, one of the most important lessons that the book teaches is that being in any relationship is not a passive journey. 
Each relationship is built upon a pattern of interaction. And in the beginning stages, people rely on casual interactions and gaining familiarity by focusing on superficialities and facts. And then they grow closer and begin to share opinions and learn to accept each other and embrace the growing relationship. And then at last, they're deeply intimate and both are willing and able to reveal their their deepest fears and their deepest pleasures and their greatest hopes. By moving through and building upon each level of intimacy, people can find comfort and gain trust in their partners and in themselves. And Kelly says that really, you know, moving through and mastering the seven levels of intimacy, people will break through to fully experiencing love and commitment and trust and happiness. So really the overall message really in the book is that in order for people to experience the kind of intimacy that they desire, they have to really understand the true purpose of relationships. You know, there will be disappointments if they're just looking to get something out of it or to feel good or to just be happy. But this perspective is really too self-centered. Instead, really, if someone aspires to truly love another, then he or she will do anything in his or her capacity to help each other, to reach their fullest potential as a human being. And the most successful and fulfilling relationships are those in which... It's reciprocal. There's a reciprocal commitment to bring out the best, really to bring out the best in each other. Here's just a a list of the ten reasons why people have good relationships. They establish a common purpose. They define what makes a relationship great. They agree on a plan to establish a great relationship. Their plan is realistic. They believe that they can achieve their goal. They make it an absolute must to be part of a great relationship. They preserve and follow through. They hold each other accountable to their purpose and their plan. They don't give up in the face of major challenges. And they get quality coaching when they need it. So you may want to ask yourself, you know, what does the ultimate relationship look like for you? How would you treat each other? And how would you spend time together? How do you make each other feel? Really be as specific as you can, because a clear vision is the first step in creating an extraordinary relationship. You know, great relationships don't come to those who hope for them. Hope really is not very powerful unless it's coupled with great effort. The great relationships belong to those who decide to put in the effort and make their relationships a priority. Don't just hope and decide to have a great relationship. Don't just hope. Decide. Decide to have a great relationship and then put your focus on achieving that goal. You know, each relationship is built upon a pattern of interaction. In the beginning, it's casual. As you gain familiarity, you grow closer. And then you can reach deeper levels of intimacy. So remember that the two major principles that Kelly sets as the core for good relationships is being the best version of yourself 
and helping your partner to be the best version of themselves, and then sharing common values and a common purpose is more important than having common interests. I encourage any of you that really resonated with what it is that Matthew Kelly has to say about the levels of intimacy to check out his book, The Seven Levels of Intimacy. It's really a great topic. It's a big topic that could go on for a long time, but I'm confident that I've left you with some things to think about here and encourage all of us to relax and to open more and to be more available to our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with each other. I appreciate you tuning in to and listening to this conversation about the seven levels of intimacy. You have been listening to Come Back to Your Senses Radio. And next week we're going to switch topics and focus on the power of prayer. So thanks for tuning in. I am your ever-grateful host, Leah Brenda-Smith. And until next time, I encourage you to relax and enjoy life. We hope you've enjoyed our program today and perhaps have found some new techniques that you can apply to your daily life. Thank you for tuning in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio. Please join Leah Brenda Smith again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. 